0: We are going to continue in our series in the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 16. I've been antsy for a few weeks waiting to get to this passage. Um, Maybe we'll just see why. But it's all about the Holy Spirit, which I think is uh, something we often can lose sight of. So let's go ahead and pray this morning. Father, we ask that As we come to the Word that was inspired by the Spirit, we ask that your Spirit who lives in us would guide us into the truth of this Word, would help us to understand more of who He is as the Spirit and what He does and the significance of what it means to have Him working in our lives. Help us this morning and convict us by the Spirit of where we fall short, where we're sinning, where we're living in unbelief, where we aren't living righteously. But most of all, Father, help us to see the glory of Christ by the Spirit's power working this morning. As we hear these words, may we see how worthy you are, how worthy Christ is of our worship, and may our hearts be stirred to that. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Anybody in here suffer from middle child syndrome? No? Yes? We got one? Anybody have children who suffer from a middle child syndrome? Yes, maybe, maybe so. I don't say that as an actual diagnosis, but we all know what I mean, don't we? The belief is, right, the oldest and the youngest get so much attention that the middle child is often ignored. Unfortunately, I think we as Christians can often treat the Holy Spirit as a middle child. We read the entire Old Testament, and we're, we see all these amazing acts that Yahweh does, and we automatically attribute that to God the Father. Then we come to the New Testament, we have the Gospels, and we have everything that follows the Gospels pointing back to Jesus in the Gospels. And so we have the entire New Testament about the Son, and we're left asking, well, what do we do with this third person of the Trinity called the Holy Spirit? Partially because His work is so inaudible. Right, we have the whole Old Testament where we have Yahweh, which like I said, we attribute as God the Father, coming and speaking directly to people, and then that message being spread by prophets or whoever he tells it to. And then we have Jesus, right, who actually takes on flesh, right, and has a body and communicates verbally with his disciples. And now we have this Holy Spirit. Well, what does he say? In fact, Jesus actually describes him earlier in the Gospel of John as he's like the wind. You might hear it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going, but you can sense that it's there. The Spirit is such a mystery to us in many ways. But that doesn't mean we should neglect him. In fact, his name is all over the New Testament, just like Jesus' name is. And as we come to our passage today, Jesus makes a very unexpected statement about the Holy Spirit. Remember, he's giving his final teaching moment on the night of his betrayal. They've left the room. They're on their way to the garden, from what we can tell. Jesus now comes and tells his disciples, I'm leaving you, and it's to your advantage that I leave. It's beneficial for his disciples, that he leaves them so that when he leaves, he will send them the Holy Spirit. There is an advantage that comes to the disciples, to you and me as well, that comes with having the Holy Spirit that would not come from walking and talking with Jesus face to face. So let's go ahead this morning and take a look at the advantage of the Holy Spirit and why we should not neglect or forget him in our Christian lives. John chapter 16, starting in verse 4. We read the first part of verse 4 last week. I'll include that this time. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will speak, not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, if you were here and you remember last week, Jesus was telling his disciples that they should expect hate from the world, right? He's leaving them. They hated Jesus. They should expect the world to hate them as well. And he said the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to bear witness about Jesus, about himself. He's going to bear witness, the Spirit will, to the disciples. And then the disciples will be empowered by the Spirit to then go and bear witness to the world, even in the midst of hate. But as we continue here, we see Jesus telling his disciples all of these things because of the massive shift that's about to happen, right? Verse 4 and 5. I didn't say these things to you from the beginning. Because I was with you. But there's a massive shift, right? Verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me. Right? So there's this massive shift that's beginning to happen now. Jesus is going to leave them. When he was with them, he didn't have to talk with them about the hate that they were going to experience. Why? Because he was the one experiencing all the hate. Right? But now he is leaving, so now he's telling them to expect the hate. He had no need to share with them before about the coming of the Spirit. But now that he is about to leave, it's an important thing for them to be aware of the coming of the Spirit. The moment has finally arrived where Jesus is going to leave them. But then he states what in verse 5? And none of you asks me, where are you going? Now, if you remember recent chapters, you might question this statement. Because Thomas earlier in this same night said, Jesus, because Jesus said, You know the way to where I'm going. He says, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? That kind of sounds like that question. Or Peter actually says, Where are you going so that I can go with you? I'm going to die with you if I have to. And so, what's Jesus mean here when he says, None of you are asking me, Where are you going? There's a couple options, right? And let me just throw a couple out there. I'm not going to say all of them, but one of them could be Jesus is saying now that they're a different part of the night, they've stopped asking that, right? No longer are they asking that because they now have the answer. That may not be the best way to interpret it, but it's a possibility. Another possibility, and I think this one's probably a little more likely, is the way they were asking, what they were implying by asking it before, is different than what Jesus wants them to be asking it for. right? Thomas and Peter are both asking, where are you going? What's the way to where you're going? Because we want to stay with you. And Jesus is saying, you're missing it. You aren't supposed to go with me. If you were to ask where I'm going, you would know I'm going to the cross and to the resurrection and to go be with the Father so that I can send you the Spirit. If you had your minds wrapped around that then it would be the right question to be asking, but it's not. right? Instead, they're asking with hearts that lack faith. They're not really trusting all that Jesus is saying at this point. It doesn't mean they don't believe. It just means that they're struggling with this. right? And that's what Jesus addresses in the next verse, verse 6. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And now most of us can see this situation and say, Rightly so, shouldn't it be? Shouldn't the disciples be feeling sorrow at this point in time? Look at all the bad news that Jesus has just announced. One of the disciples is going to betray me. Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the night is over. I'm going to leave you. You will see me no longer. Oh, and by the way, after I leave you, the world's going to hate you and try to kill you and think they're doing it in the name of God. Goodness. It's difficult to imagine our natural minds, at least, grasping any other response than sorrow. What else would we expect to respond with, again, in our natural minds? But Jesus reveals that his disciples need to trust him. That his departure is actually to their advantage. As hard as this is to believe, if the disciples would lift up their eyes off their seemingly sorrowful circumstances and instead trust the goodness of their Savior, they would see a bigger picture of what's going on here. Look at verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you but if I go, I will send him to you. It really comes down to one basic question. Would you rather have Jesus walking and talking with you before the cross, or would you rather have the Spirit come to you after the cross? Which situation do you prefer? Jesus says, specifically, it is better, more profitable for his disciples if he leaves. Because only when he leaves and goes to the cross and is raised from the dead and goes to the Father will he then send the Holy Spirit. So we have here the advantage of the Holy Spirit. And I hope we can hold on to this truth. Because we often are tempted to envy the life of the disciples, aren't we? To just be with Jesus, right? To walk with Him, to listen to Him, to watch Him. We can't even grasp what it would mean to see a sinless life being lived in front of our very eyes. To have God Himself in the flesh verbally communicating with us. But please hold on to what Jesus says here. It is better, more profitable, to your advantage, to be in the context after Jesus has died, been raised, and ascended because he sent the Spirit. Based on Jesus' own words, we have a greater reality now than the disciples ever did before the cross. Hold on to that. But that leads to a question of how or why, right? Why is this a greater reality? How is having the Spirit better than having Jesus in the flesh walking with us? I mean, we could answer. Certainly, it's, it's good for us. It's better for us to have the news of Christ's death and resurrection, right? So we can see how it's better to be on this side of Jesus. But how is it better to have the Spirit than it would be to have even post-resurrection Jesus walking with us, right? How is this better? He goes on to describe why. Why is it profitable? First, we find that the Spirit convicts. The Spirit convicts. Now, this is where we begin to see different functions within members of the Trinity. Right? So, just bear with me for a second as we talk through some of these things. Who sent the Son to the world? The Father did, not the Holy Spirit. Who dies on the cross? The Son does, not the Father, not the Spirit. So now we come to the Spirit, and we have a particular function that He does that both the Father and the Son do not do. He convicts. Right? So Father sends the Son, Son dies, Spirit comes and convicts. Right? That's what we see in verse 8. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and... And righteousness and judgment. Right? This doesn't necessarily mean every single person in the history of the world will be convicted by the Spirit, but it means, broadly speaking, the conviction of the Spirit, the tr- as the truth of the gospel goes forth, the Spirit will work and convict people of all different tribes, tongues, and nations. Part of the ministry of the Spirit is for Him to convict people, for, for Him to help people see themselves differently. Isn't that what really happens when we feel convicted? When we feel convicted about something, it's I now am seeing myself in some sort of different light, in a different way than I once saw myself before. And so Jesus describes here three different convictions that the Spirit does. Three particular ways he helps us see ourselves differently. First, the Spirit convicts sin. Sin. And he gives a description of this in verse 9. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. So Jesus links here sin and unbelief. It was sin for the entire Jewish communities to reject Jesus, to not believe in Jesus, to live in unbelief, was sin for them. But that's not the extent of conviction, right? It says here the Spirit is going to come convict them that it's not just that they lived in unbelief, but now they're going to become aware that they were living in unbelief, right? It's not just that sin is called out, it's that we now have a recognition of our own sin, right? So, this is first and foremost a reminder for us that we all have to realize that the moment any one of us became aware of the sin in our own lives, aware of our own need for a Savior, wasn't by our own willpower. None of us just randomly heard the gospel message and said, you know what, that does sound like me, because I just decided it does today. That's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin, of our unbelief. Tell me, is that an advantage to you? Is that a benefit for you to feel convicted when you're living in unbelief? Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus about how someone enters the kingdom of God. He must be born of water and spirit. This is part of that. Feeling convicted of sin is a part of being born again. It's not the full thing, but it's a part of it. And so I sure hope you'd say you'd rather have that then never have the Spirit sent. Never feel convicted over your unbelief. Jesus continues on, though. Next, the Spirit convicts righteousness. Explanation is in verse 10. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Now, this kind of sounds odd. How is it that he convicts of righteousness, but Jesus then mentions the fact that he's leaving, but think about it. What example of righteousness did the disciples have up until this point in their lives? Jesus himself. He was the righteousness that they kept looking at. He was pure righteousness. Now he's leaving. He's going to the Father. They're not going to see him anymore. How will they know what righteousness is? How will they know what, what's right and what's wrong? How how one way to live is right and the other one's displeasing to God. How will they know that? The Holy Spirit. He will convict them of what's righteous and what's not. Right? That's what we see here. He will will help them to see, now that they don't have Jesus standing in front of them, because Jesus is one to be with the Father, the Spirit helps them to see what true righteousness really is. They will have clarity on what is right and what is wrong. Is that an advantage? Now the disciples can go anywhere in the world with the Spirit with them and know what righteousness is without having to follow the singular person of Jesus in the flesh. We ought to be thankful for this advantage. We would never be able to have our lives, our hearts, pursue a right way of living as followers of Jesus if it weren't for the Spirit telling us what the right way of living is. The Spirit convicts us of what's righteous. And then last, the Spirit convicts judgment. Jesus describes it in verse 11. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged Now again, we need to put some pieces together in this one, but first, let's just give a hearty amen to the plain and simple meaning, right? Satan, the devil, the father of lies, is judged. Jesus already said at the beginning, at the end of his public ministry, again those final moments as he was speaking, he said what? The hour has come for the ruler of this world to be cast out. As Jesus goes to the cross, the accuser can no longer accuse in the presence of God because the sins of God's people have been paid for. No accusations left to be made. But why is Jesus telling the disciples that this is so important, such an advantage to them that the Spirit will convict the world, convict people of judgment? Remember what Jesus had already told them back in chapter 8, verse 44. For those who rejecting him, what's he say? You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So what's the point here? If the ruler of this world is judged, who also is judged? His children. The ones who are following the father of lies. The ones who believe the lies rather than the truth. The ones who are continuing to walk in their unbelief. Right? So now that's what we see in verse 11 when he says the ruler of this world is judged. Yes and amen. Satan is cast out from the presence of God to not accuse anymore those who have been saved. But those who continue to follow the ruler of this world, they also will face judgment. And the Spirit convicts them of that. Again, this ought to be an advantage to us. Recognizing our own sin, knowing what righteousness looks like, even if Christ isn't walking this earth with us, knowing the judgment that comes for the devil and those who live in relationship with him, those are all things we all desperately need to realize in the salvation process, don't we? And Jesus says they only happen by the Spirit coming and convicting us of them. And we actually see this play out when the Spirit first arrives in Acts chapter 2. Just look at it. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 36. We're right at the back end here of Peter's sermon. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart you have crucified Jesus. And what happens? They are cut to the heart and say, what must we do? To which Peter says, repent! Be baptized in the name of Jesus and you will receive forgiveness and the full gift of the Holy Spirit that you're already sensing right now, right? Don't think that conviction only happens After you've put your faith in Christ, after you've repented, then you feel convicted. The only reason any of us ever repent is because we first felt convicted. And that is the work of the Spirit. But my friends, may this be a reminder for us that conviction should breed repentance. Have you ever had a child come to you? I have, probably a couple times in the last week. And say, I'm sorry, and then go right back to doing it. Ever had that experience? Conviction without repentance. Conviction has to breed repentance. It must lead to something. Just because you feel bad about your sin, or just because you say, I might have a good idea of what righteousness looks like, or because you believe that eternal judgment is a real thing, doesn't mean you've repented. The cutting to the heart here in Acts, the conviction of the Spirit is followed by a call to repent. May we never be content to recline in only conviction. Christians can easily do this, treating conviction like that lazy river at the water park where we just lay back and cruise through the Christian life because, oh yeah, I feel bad about my sin. Repentance takes work. We must turn from our sin. Not just feel bad about it, but turn away from it and seek to live righteously in Christlikeness. That's the advantage of the Spirit. It all begins with Him. Conviction about our sin so that we can turn from it, but then He also convicts us of what righteous living looks like so that we can turn and live in a different way. It's all a work of the Spirit. But that leads us to the next advantage Jesus lays out for us. The Spirit guides into truth. Now it's important for us to remember that we must distinguish here the difference between what this meant for the disciples and what this means for us. All right, so let's just look at it in verse 12 and 13 first for what it meant for them. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Jesus says, I have a lot more to say, but you can't bear it all right now. Your hearts are filled with sorrow. We don't have time for me to give everything, but when I send you... The Spirit, when I go to be with the Father, after all these crucial events happen, I will send the Spirit, and He will guide you into all truth. Essentially, the Spirit will make known all the things I have to say to you right now, but can't, right? That's what it says later, is that the Spirit takes all that He hears from Jesus and makes it known, right? Because, let's be honest, who does the Holy Spirit hear? If He's not speaking on His own authority, it tells us here, right, that the Spirit... Whatever he hears, he will speak. Well, who does the Spirit hear? Probably the one who sends him, which we found out back in verse 7 is Jesus. So once Jesus leaves to go be with the Father, he still is speaking to the Spirit, and the Spirit is declaring it to the disciples. In fact, Jesus already told the disciples Earlier on that night, that he, the Spirit would bring back to remembrance all the things they've experienced with Jesus. So the Spirit's going to give them greater clarity on what the disciples should remember about their walk in Jesus' ministry for these three years. But he also is going to give them something else. You see it there in verse 13. He will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, to some extent, this is just what's about to happen in the next few hours, right? Jesus is about to go to the cross, three days later be resurrected. The disciples don't understand all that yet, and the Spirit's going to help them gain understanding about all of that once it takes place. But it's also the rest of the New Testament, isn't it? First Corinthians chapter 15, the whole book of 2 Thessalonians, the whole book of Revelation, all the things that are yet to come. And Jesus says, all of that is by the Spirit. So I said at the beginning of this point that it's different for them than it is for us. Why? Well, please tell me, how does the Spirit bring remembrance to you of the things of when you walked with Jesus on this earth? Right? We have to remember these words are being spoken to disciples who actually did walk with Jesus. And they're told they're going to be guided into all truth. They're going to understand all their experiences with Jesus in a deeper way and even guided into knowing future events. And where do we see this all take place at? They wrote it down for us. All the truth that the Spirit guided them in, they wrote down. All their deep understanding of their experiences with Jesus, they recorded in the four Gospels. All the implications of that, they recorded in their letters and in their prophecies of what is yet to come. In fact, look how Peter describes the writing of Scripture in his own letter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no Prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In a reference to Scripture itself, particularly prophecies, Peter describes the human authors as being carried along by the Spirit. He did guide them into all truth. He guided them into the glories of Christ that they couldn't bear to understand while Jesus was still with them. Now their experience of being guided into truth is distinctly different from ours. Because how many of you in here are being guided by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture? I sure hope none of you would say that. Or who in here is saying, I have a direct, audible voice from God giving me this prophecy of what is to come? Now, that doesn't mean we don't have the advantage. It just means ours looks different. Our advantage is twofold. First, we have the entire truth that the disciples were guided into writing down for us. My friends, if we could just grasp this, the significance of Scripture that we have. The promise, this promise that Jesus says, that the Spirit will guide you into all truth, Sits on our very shelves at home every single day. The fulfillment of that promise, all truth that you need, sits there. But we also have a second advantage. The Spirit who carried them to write this lives in us as we read it. You know, in recent years, J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter books, has come out multiple times with different kind of like inputs on her books. Now, believe what you want about the Harry Potter books. That's not the point. The point is this, is people grasp onto, oh, she meant this with this character. She meant this when this event happened. It means something much more significant when the author of the book is telling you what the book meant. Friends, when you have the very Spirit who carried along the writers of Scripture living inside of you, you also will be guided into all truth, and He will convict you and make you know what it is He meant when He carried them along to write it. We will be guided into truth as well as we commit ourselves to the Spirit-inspired, Christ-centered truths that we find in Scripture. And since all of Scripture does point forward to Christ, backward to Christ. That leads us to the final advantage of the Spirit. The Spirit glorifies Christ. Like earlier in the passage, we see this as a specific function within the Trinity. We've seen already, right, the Son glorifies the Father, the Father glorifies the Son. Now we see the Spirit glorifies the Son. You know what it never says in Scripture? That the Father or the Son glorify the Spirit. And he's okay with that. It doesn't make him any less God. It's that they all have a specific function and role to play in this Trinitarian relationship. But in verses 14 and 15, Jesus declares what the Spirit will do. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He repeats himself there, but he... Includes an extra note there, right, in verse 15. Do you catch it? The Spirit is going to take what is Jesus, what belongs to him, and declare it to the disciples. But what, what is the source of all that Jesus has? All that the Father has is mine. So Jesus receives all from the Father. The Spirit takes all that belongs to Jesus and makes it known declares it to the disciples. This is Jesus' way of saying what we already believe to be true from 2 Timothy 3.16, where Paul says, all Scripture is God-breathed. And Jesus is saying that here in verse 15, right? All that the Spirit hears from Jesus, he's going to say, but all that Jesus has first came from the Father. And so when we read the truth that the Spirit has guided the disciples into writing, we are reading the very words from God himself. And the Spirit uses these words for a purpose. Verse 14. The Spirit will glorify Jesus. Now if you remember our other discussions of glorifying in previous passages, to glorify means that we... Something is happening that is causing us to see more clearly how much value and praise God is worthy of. Ultimately, yes, we know God is infinitely worthy of worship, but we don't always live that way. So as we open up the truths that the Father gave to Jesus, that Jesus speaks to the Spirit, and that the Spirit declares and guides the disciples into, those truths should produce an eruption of worship from our souls. Because let's be honest, you and I would never, never consider God to be praiseworthy. We would never consider Jesus to be our treasure if the Spirit doesn't first remove the blinders from our hearts so that we might see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So it should stir worship in us when we see the truth that is written about Jesus by the Spirit as he gave it to the apostles. So my friends, my urge for you this morning is don't neglect the Holy Spirit. Let me just give you some words from the New Testament across all sorts of books. Just give you some words about the Spirit and what we're told to do with him. Walk by the Spirit. Set your minds on the things of the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Let the Spirit teach you. Be sanctified by the Spirit. Sow to the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Receive strength from the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. Worship by the Spirit. He is an advantage to you. He will convict you in order to stir you to repentance. He will guide you in the truth that he himself authored. And he will lift up your eyes from that truth to see the glories of God in Jesus Christ. May we trust the Spirit of God to help us in a much better way to do all that which we could never do ourselves. We would never be able to do any of this. We can't convict ourselves. We can't lead ourselves into truth. We can't force ourselves into seeing the glories of Christ. May we recognize the advantage that comes in having the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, may we not lose sight of the truth of what Jesus tells us about the Spirit here, that it's, it's more profitable for us to have him than it would be to even walk with Jesus before he went to the cross. Oh, Lord, help us to grasp onto that. Help us to wake up every morning thankful for your Spirit. And may that stir us to walk with him. May we lean on him, trust him. May we spend time in the truth that he guided the disciples to write. And Lord, as we look at that truth, help us by your spirit to see the glory of Jesus. May our souls erupt with worship as we hold on to Jesus as our treasure in this life. We ask all of this in his name. Amen. And as they come up, we're going to sing.